Listening to BSing with Sean K on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm your host, Sean Neese, and on this show, I talk with people who live outside the box, providing a platform for opinions not often heard in the mainstream media. And in this episode, I'm going to play you a conversation I had with my good friend and former housemate, Christian Ramos. And he is an activist. He's uh, also a graduate student at Seton Hall University studying diplomacy and international relations. And he's interning at the United Nations. And uh, a project, a main project of his that he's really passionate about, he has a Facebook page for it. It's called Wartime Hidden Victims. And what he wants to advocate for and spread awareness to is sexual assault and sexual violence towards men worldwide and he goes a bit into his own story and how he originally came from Puerto Rico and his family was affected by the hurricane and then he was diagnosed with leukemia and he talks about how that influenced his activism as well as he's very religious and that that's inspired him as well uh he's a christian and we when he lived here we had a lot of talks over coffee about politics religion a lot of big topics and i didn't always agree with him on a lot of things i'm not very religious myself i kind of pick and choose from different things but i'm not a big fan of organized religion but uh regardless of our different views we respected one another and became good friends and yeah I, I like staying here at the 51 ward in south orange that's what we call it 51 ward I, I it's also or area 51 i wasn't here when they gave it that nickname but we go into that more in the episode and anyway like i said a main issue he is advoc- he wants to advocate for is sexual assault and sexual abuse towards men and boys uh, internationally and and I think that's an important subject to talk about because it's definitely not talked about a lot in the mainstream media you know usually because women are more often victims of sexual violence you don't usually think of it happening towards men and boys and we talk about that in the interview and Without further delay, here's the conversation, and I hope you enjoy it. Hey, so, uh, yeah, good to get back in touch. I know you've been away in uh, uh, Puerto Rico. Since the launch. Yeah, since this uh, corona thing started, and we, we both live, we're housemates. We live together in what we call the 51 Ward, or Area 51, and uh, in Sa- you're part of the uh, diplomacy program at Seton Hall here in uh, South Orange, and uh, I just work in Morristown, and I was doing a lot of things in the city, so this was kind of like a good location for me, and it's a nice town here, South Orange, um, and we we we, uh, we bonded while we were housemates here. We had a lot of conversations 
over the coffee about yeah coffee. yeah and you told me about this activism uh that you, you've been wanting to do for a while about victims victims of war and bringing attention to that and you said it was something you wanted to get more into once you finished your studies with diplomacy so maybe just talk about what maybe just elaborate more on what that is and what led you to be interested okay so my name is christian ramos uh thank you for having me here sean uh we've been wanting to do this for a while now for over a year so it's nice that we now have the time uh i wanted i got into the program diplomacy program because i wanted to understand the refugee crisis Uh, After Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico in 2017, um, I guess I was awakened to this reality that anyone can be a victim of a natural disaster. And many Puerto Ricans lost their homes due to floods, landslides, uh, strong winds. And uh, we were without power for... We went without power for almost five months. And there were some that went without power for almost a year. And uh, I started thinking, we lost our homes. I mean, I didn't. My family didn't, thank God, but many people did. And uh, But at least we had, to some extent, the help of the federal government because Puerto Rico is a commonwealth. And uh, But there are... In other countries, in Africa, in the Middle East, in Somalia, in Southeast Asia, these people don't have that kind of help that we have. So when they lose their homes, they have to, most of the time, they get displaced. Sometimes within the country they live in, or they have, in in other circumstances, they have to cross natural borders and become internationally displaced some become stateless and some become refugees in refugee camps and I guess I became aware of the plight of refugees and I was like okay I need to do something I need I want to understand the, their challenges I want to understand their symptoms um, their situations and the best way to do it is to get into a, a master's degree in international relations and diplomacy however <laughs> when I apply for the master's degrees um, at these in three different schools, I didn't get into any. It was horrible. And on top of that, there was a hurricane. I was like, what am I going to do with my life? <laughs> like, I mean, I don't have a master's degree. I, wasn't a, uh, I don't have a job. On top of that, I don't have power and electricity or internet. And it was crazy. So I think it was October 2017 after the hurricane. I, did, I came across this program at Seton Hall University. And I saw that it had a connection with the United Nations and uh, I decided to apply. So I went to the city twice every, I mean, once every two weeks to get in touch with my professors because I didn't have electricity or power or internet. So I had to go to their homes and ask for the recommendation letters, ask for feedbacks on my letter of intent. Uh, so I apply and I think I was accepted because I, I mean, I think like 
telling my experience in the in letter of intent and also telling my experience about working for FEMA because after the hurricane, I think it was in January 2018, I got accept, I got a position with FEMA as a case manager was where I was help, able to help people uh, that lost their homes and their belongings and their livelihoods. And uh, I think telling my experience as a humanitarian in the letter of intent opened me the door to pursue my master's degree. Uh, so the experience of the hurricane, plus my experience as a humanitarian with FEMA, guided me in the path towards becoming an international humanitarian that wants to like help refugees. Uh, and that's basically it. Uh, at the university, I was able to get a position as a vice president of the Inter uh, Crowd Diplomacy Council. I was also a United Nations digital representative where we tried to do good things, uh, like raise awareness for set, uh, on certain international issues. Um, I also was able to get an internship with the United Nations Population Fund, which is a UN agency that deals with uh, sexual violation, uh, childbirth, uh, family planning, basically anything that has to do with uh, sexual violence and gender-based violence and geni gen uh, uh, female genital mutilations uh, and advancing uh, gender equality for women. Uh, and there I became aware of sexual violence against men and boys, something that happens in conflicts, in wars, in refugee camps, and in, in, in any country in our daily lives. Um, however, I knew men were raped. I knew men are also victims of sexual violence, but I didn't know. It was something like I knew very deep inside of me. Because when people mention rape or sexual violence, they immediately think of women and girls. And that was me too. Until I got into this internship and I was assigned this research about sexual violence against men and boys. And I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So that's when I was awakened to this reality that men and boys experience unimaginable sexual violence um, uh, and rape uh, and forms of rape that are, may amount to torture in conflicts in Syria, in Yemen, in refugee camps, uh, in prisons in the United States. And I think that I got into the program to understand the refugee crisis. And along the way, the program and their experiences it gave me helped me narrow it down to sexual violence against men and boys in refugee settings. So uh, it's been amazing. It hasn't been easy either. It hasn't been like all victories and achievements. Uh, I have my struggles too. And like any other person, uh, along the way, I think it was three months into the program and I was also diagnosed with leukemia. So I had to go back home, go through chemo for eight months, uh, finish my incompletes in the summer of 2019 until I finally came back in August of 2019 to now find out that I had to come back home and finish the program remotely because of COVID-19. 
So even though I have had these amazing opportunities, it hasn't been without struggles or opposition or uh, anxiety or anything that we as humans always experience. Uh, but I hope that once I graduate this fall, I'll be able to get a job with the United Nations to help further my interests with refugees and sexual I, violence. Against I feel like that would give you a, a unique perspective on COVID too, because you said like you, with the, the hurricane you experienced being without power. And then as you told me, like, uh, you know, you, you, you had leukemia and you beat leukemia, right? Like, you're, I don't know if you're, you're, yeah. you recovered. So that, that must have prepared you for what's going on now with COVID and the risk of, you know, and the lockdowns. Like, I mean, obviously that's not the same as not having power, but it's kind of like the similar, like it, it, like how people are locked in. Like there's not, it's not as easy for people to go to work and stuff like that. So, and, and the risk of being sick, like you've already had like, a problem with your health so maybe that kind of prepared I'm, I'm just thinking like that gave you that must have given you like a unique perspective on what's going on uh, you've been going through COVID and remote working and learning yeah yeah like the stuff you went through in the past like must have like I, I'm just thinking like you must have a un unique take on like it must have prepared you for what's going yeah. on now with COVID while other people weren't as prepared Actually, yes, it did. I remember that when I got into the program in 2018, I dealt with a lot of anxiety from being away from home. I remember that I couldn't be away from my phone. As soon as I got up in the morning, I had to call my mom or my brothers or friends just to feel that I was connected to home here in Puerto Rico. Um, once I remember that I woke up in the morning and my phone was dead and I got this anxiety and my heart started pounding and I think I almost had a how do you call that um, uh, how do you call that when your heart is pounding really uh, fast and uh, I got a, I think a, an anxiety episode until my phone was charged and I was able to call my, my family and I think going through leukemia it made me stronger uh, because it's not easy being diagnosed with this um, illness that not many people get to survive. I remember that I was in a room in the hospital with two different people and both of them died and I'm still here. And just going through chemo, going through different bi um, uh, biopsies from, and even I even got chemo from my, uh, through my spinal cord and going through all that, it makes you stronger. It makes you look at life with faith, with hope, and uh, and it makes you it, it helps you understand that every day is it's also it's a struggle, but it's also uh, a blessing and an opportunity to do things better. So when I came back in 2019 to school, I was I wasn't as close or as attached to my phone or family. I was able to go. Uh, through the day and days without uh, calling my mom or my family. And uh, so it also made me stronger to deal with the United Nations because it's an environment with a lot of people from all over the world with a lot of competition. And it keeps you, going through that gives you some kind of per 
perspective and character that otherwise I wouldn't have had. So now with COVID, I came back home and uh, I don't feel like I lost something. I don't feel like I'm losing opportunities or experiences uh, in, in New Jersey or at the UN because if I lived through that, I, I would be able to live through COVID and remote learning and remote working. And uh, it, what it gave me most is that uh, a positive outlook uh, and, uh, on life, no matter what's happening around you, uh, be it a pandemic or illness or failure. Uh, it's like I've survived this, I can survive anything. Uh, but not just for myself, I wanna, I wanna continue living, but for as for others, I wanna help others. I wanna give back every, at this second chance that I've gained of life. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because a lot of times people think that you know if you go through a lot of things, you're gonna be more cynical or, or bitter. But it sounds like it, and, and like with you and with other people too that I've talked to, it gives you, it makes you more grateful or it makes you want to help other people or have more empathy for people that are less fortunate. And I think it sounds like in a way it kind of helped you like both the hurricane and being uh, sick with leukemia kind of helped you find your purpose in a way. Cause you said that's when like the, the activism and like wanting to help refugees I don't, came in. Yeah. I don't think it gave me, it guided me the experience I have with leukemia. It, I was already in the path. I think it just gave me, more character and strength to keep going, to do the work that I wanted to do. I feel like before that I was lacking a lot of uh, strength and character. I think I was very, anything that, I, that would happen to me would strike me, uh, I mean, would hit me in a way that would uh, bring me down. But when you go through that and you're stronger and you go through ex certain experiences with people or in life and, and now, after going through all the hurricane, leukemia, and now COVID. Uh, yeah, I think uh, not everything brings me, down, brings me down as before. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, because you, I guess you, it's more like seeing the bigger picture, not taking things for granted, because like, That's I guess true. it's easier to see the, the beauty and like the simple things in life and like focus more on what matters, like what's important. Exactly, and at least I have my family, my like family support, my friends, and uh, but then you start thinking about refugees. You know how many refugees may have cancer, or uh, diabetes, or heart diseases, and they're in refugee camps. And I mean, the United Nations and NGOs give a lot of aid, humanitarian aid, and psychological services and health services there's so much they can do for so many for so for 75 million people that are displaced right now in the world and i remember being in a room getting chemo and i was like thinking about refugees that need a chemo in refugee camps i think like being displaced or being stateless and also going through an illness that, like that is not easy so it also gave me the perspective 
I mean, no perspective, more like courage or uh, guidance of like, I really, I, I knew that this is what I really wanted to do. I don't want people going through these horrible things and not having help, genuine help. Yeah. Not just not just in terms of like goods, but more like in terms of like emotional help. Some um, people you can rely on, people that can help you. Yeah, and that's and that's even true for like people in the United States that don't have like a lot of money and stuff. Like they they don't have access to healthcare or like or if they, they or if they have to pay for like treatment, then it it bankrupts them and they lose all their money. And uh, but I mean, exactly. yeah. And like for refugees, like I guess they're they're, they're kind of tossed aside. I guess I feel like people lump in like immigrants and like refugees together because like immigrants are like coming here, like or coming to other places because they want like there's more opportunities there and they're going by choice. But refugees, like they're looking for somewhere to go and they're kind of in the limbo. Exactly. The difference is that immigrants they apply for visas to go to work to a, another country. For example, someone from Mexico may apply for a working visa or a student visa in the United States. Uh, and they are not fleeing war or conflict or hunger or natural disasters. But then refugees, they are people that were displaced due to war, conflict, persecution, political persecution, religious beliefs, um, because of gender or uh, also sexual identity uh, and they flee their country because they're being persecuted and they need help. They need protection from the United Nations and from the countries that are supposed to give that protection. Um, right now, for example, Syria has been called the worst um the worst refugee crisis in recent years. I think there are 6 million refugees from Syria in the world. Most of them live in refugee camps in Jordan, in, Jordan, in Lebanon, in uh, Turkey. Uh, the oldest refugee camp, Syrian refugee camp, is in Lebanon, and it's called Zatari Camp. There are, I think, half a million refugees living there. And it's a refugee camp where you have businesses. You have, it's, it's called the fourth biggest, biggest city in, in Lebanon right now. I mean, Jordan, it's from Jordan. And uh, that's, I mean, refugee, not every country opens the, do the doors to refugees. And the United States and Canada have been known for seeing large numbers of refugees. But... They may receive 30,000 refugees a year, but you still have 6 million refugees in refugee camps and urban settings in, and ghettos in these countries, in the Middle East, in, in Africa. And only 1% is resettled to a third country every year. So imagine all the hundreds of thousands of applications and only 1% or less than 1% getting resettled. Uh, another option is getting asylum in the country where there's a, the refugee camp is at, but that's also like a 1%. And then you have repatriation, the possibility of going back to your country, but then if protection is no guarantee there due to civil war, 
due to uh, political instability, then repatriation is not a choice. So refugees are left without many options, and the only option they have is either stay at the refugee camp or continue moving to another countries, to other countries looking for help. Yeah. Which is what happened right now. Many refugees are going through Turkey to get into Europe, uh, but then they get there and they're illegal migrants. Um, they don't have the same opportunities and protection that legal refugees have. That's it's hard to, and so I'm guessing it's hard to get a legal status too, right? It's really, really hard, and it's like, and it, and it can take from two years to more. Yeah. So, what what made you want to like specialize in men and boys and the sexual violence towards them? Oh, so when I was at the United Nations Population Fund. I was sitting at my desk and my supervisor approaches me and says, Christian, I have a project for you. I want you to research the issue of sexual violence against men and boys in conflict and post-conflict settings. Explain why sexual violence against men and boys occur. Research the purpose of sexual violence against men and boys. Research the consequences that have that has in not only the survivor, but also in the community and the families. And, and, and look at any services that the United Nations or NGOs might be providing to victims and survivors of sexual violence, men and boys specifically. And I was like, whoa, that's the first moment that, that hit me. Men and boys are victims of sexual violence. So I started doing the research and... I became aware of the fact that this is a taboo subject. It's very neglected. People don't know about it for different reasons that are social, political, and economical. And uh, that the United Nations don't provide the amount of services that are needed to address this issue. Because, I mean, sexual violence against women was recognized in the 1990s. And... Ever since then, all the services are for women. Every convention, UN resolution, every treaty, it's about women. So men were neglected, men were left behind. Men were recognized as victims of sexual violence in 2019, 20, 30 years after the recognition was made uh, mm-hmm. of women. Uh, victims of sexual violence and uh, so I started doing research about refugee camps and the issue of sexual violence in refugee camps which is a post-conflict setting and I was shocked because I've always been pulled towards things that are neglected <laughs> so <laughs> refugees and sexual violence and uh, marginalized communities everything that's neglected that's that the, the, that society is leaving behind, I'm always pulled to that. That's what I want to do. That's what I want to address. That's what I want to... I feel that's what my... Because you feel like nobody else is saying it, so you, you want to be the one... You feel like nobody else is focusing on it, so you want to be... I want to... Yeah, I want to... 
I want to bring attention to that. I want to be bring much needed attention, awareness, recognition. So I even created this Facebook page called Wartime Hidden Victims. And I called the, the title the, the titles Hidden Victims because they're hidden victims. People don't know about it. Uh, people don't know that men and boys are victims of sexual violence in conflicts and that this is actually a weapon of war. Sexual violence in conflict is a weapon of war, just like bullets are and cannons, and it's a strategy, and it's very well implemented because yes, sexual violence weakens communities, weakens families, displaces families and communities. And if you do it well, and it's something that people are not recognizing, then it's more effective. And it's mainly male-on-male sexual violence, or what is the so the subject, sexual violence, women are disproportionately affected. Women are always disproportionately affected in the subject of sexual violence. But men and boys comprise a sizable minority too. And when I'm talking about sexual violence against men and boys, I'm talking about male-on-male sexual violence. Uh, for example, in conflict settings, it ha- can happen at home. It can happen on the streets. It can happen... But it usually happens more in situations of detention. In Syria, for example, the the opposition had lots of detention centers for combatants, for those people that tried to flee Syria. And there were the, the majority of the population in the detention centers were men. And for example, in refugee settings, in one refugee setting in Jordan, uh, a woman told the UN Refugee Agency that about 30% to 40% of men in Syria ex- have experienced some form of sexual violence. In situations of detention, it may amount to torture. Men ex- may experience gang rape, rape, uh, forced incest. Uh, they may be penetrated with bottles, broken bottles, hoses, drills. Men may be castrated. Uh, 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 and it's really horrible and the saddest thing is that in these communities in these societies gender norms are very well established and defined men are seen as masculine as the protector of the family and the community so the idea that a man can be raped is unconceivable for these people and if a man was raped they would think that he was a homosexual or a weak man. So in many situations when a man is raped, the wife leaves the husband or the community shames the person, the survivor, or an ostracizes them. Uh, because something that men cannot be raped, and if he was raped, he asked for it. And uh, so men isolate themselves because they are ostracized, and chained. And the thing is that many of them that were raped, they need health services because they have internal features and ruptures and they need reparative surgery. So when they isolate, they may die from internal bleeding, uh, infections, uh, and those that do not have in do not need health services, may need psychological services. So the idea is that these men that are survivors of sexual violence need to be recognized by the United Nations 
it was already done last year. However, there hasn't been much improvement because many of the services continue to be for women and girls. And men continue to isolate themselves and families continue to be uh, destroyed. Communities continue to be weakened. Uh, and men need to know that if they were raped, it wasn't their fault. They should not be ashamed of it. Uh, it was the, the perpetrator's fault. It was the shame. We should shame the perpetrator, not the victim, not the survivor. So I feel like this issue, there's a lot of awareness that has to go into it. The United Nations and activists have to go to refugee camps, have to go to survivor centers and tell them this is not their fault. This can happen to anyone. Raise awareness. Deconstruct these social beliefs that don't allow men to come forward as for services and also provide services. I feel like we cannot achieve genuine gender equality when men are, living, are being left behind. This is something that has to do with human dignity and achieving gender equality means that we are both equals. And Right now, men are, leave, are being left behind. And if they are being left behind, I don't, there's something missing. There's something that along the way was done wrong in the human rights movement. So you think the same systems that oppress women and put women on a lower level also oppress men, but in another way? Like, like kind of, like there were ways that it's affected them in a bad way, but like maybe just not in the same way. And that's why they're not able to talk about, because like they had that, they had to live up to that image of being a man and not talk, not being the victim and some of the other things. Yeah, exactly. Um, woman, so sexual violence has existed for hundreds of years in domestic settings, and uh, in war conflict settings. Women were always disproportionately affected because of these patriarchal societies we live in. These patriarchal societies we live in also affected men because men have always been raped too. But men could not allow themselves to be portrayed or seen as weak. So that's why, along, that's part of the reason why along the way of these fight for equality, men were left behind because the same structures that the that men built mm -hmm. in a way um, in a way affected them or neglected them as victims and survivors of sexual violence. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, like not seeing them as the victims, seeing more of them as the perpetrator. Which is violence. why the United Nations didn't recognize sexual violence against men and boys until last year. I mean, all these there are, in, this, in the United Nations, we have 193 countries. Most of the ambassadors and presidents of these countries and le political leaders are men. Men could not allow to see themselves as victims of sexual violence as well. And also, if they knew that was happening, they could not allow for that to be known. And when the time came, 
I think it was in 2012, when this issue was brought up before the Security Council of the United Nations, they could not deny that this is something that's happening anymore, but they treated it as something that's unusual or rare or that, didn't, that, or that they didn't know about. I think that along the way, uh, since the 1990s, they have recognized, it has become known that this is a weapon of war. And if it's not addressed, it becomes a com- an issue. And if you're trying, when wars and conflicts become a threat to international peace and security, uh, it becomes a, a threat to the United Nations and to major countries. So when if they want to try, if they want to try and address the issue of sexual violence as a weapon of war, they I think they realized along the way that addressing sexual violence for women but not for men has become ineffective. You have to treat sexual violence as a whole because women are victims, girls are victims, boys are victims, men are victims. Um, And uh, all people are victims. So this is something that affects everyone in, in a community. So in order to address it, you have to recognize and address all of its parts, not just one, but just one side of it. And what has been the reaction when you brought this up in your department or to other people? Is it, is it something people aren't used to hearing? Like, how have people responded? So at the UN right now, I'm just an intern. I'm a policy and liaison intern. So I did the research because I was, it was assigned to me. But uh, I don't believe they've done much with it. They haven't done the work that we're supposed to do with it. Um, when I bring this subject up at school, though, People react, some people know about it, and the people that didn't know about it react surprised. But they react surprised in a way that's unsettling for them. They feel unsettled, and they feel, and they start to become aware and curious about it. So they, I, I noticed that they want to know more. And some of them want to be agents of change too. So... Uh, most of the reactions have been, have been good. I've, I created this Facebook page. Uh, it's slow. Uh, sometimes I post, I, I try to post uh, one, a post every week or at least two. I don't get many interactions with people, but I feel like every fight starts somewhere. So we just have to be positive, strong, and know that I'm not doing this for recognition yeah. or fame I'm doing it for the people that need protection and services so I posted a picture yesterday with some information no one gave it a like but I saw that 73 people saw it so even if they saw it and read and didn't give, uh, like the picture on the, on the post I know that they're aware I know that they know what's happening and they cannot uh claim uh, uh, ignorance anymore. So I'm going to keep doing it, and I hope that when I graduate in the fall, I'll be able to get a job where I could further my interests in this area. I just became aware to it this semester.
And that, that's good. Uh, you're picking up on this cause because in, in the past, at least from what I've seen, a lot of the reason, another reason, I think this is mainly U.S. and other Western countries. This has been a problem. Like with talking about it, is the ones who tend to jump on like the sexual violence against men or uh, this. I don't know if you're familiar with like men's rights activists or like the, all those anti-feminists or like mis- some of the misogynistic groups that are on the internet that just want to demonize feminists or people who talk about women's rights and say, oh, well, men men get raped too, like, so shut up. But they're not doing it because they genuinely want to help with the issue. They're doing it because they just want to deflect the conversation. So then I think some people aren't open to learning about those causes as much because then it's like, oh, they're just trying to deflect the conversation away from violence against women. But I, yeah, think, I think both need to be talked about, but it doesn't need to come from an anti-woman, anti-feminist perspective. Yeah, I think it can, you can still... Like both yes. issues can equally be. I, I, I feel like the world, it moves from one issue to another issue at a time. I don't know if you noticed. But, uh, yeah. A lot of that's the, me- the media. Yeah, yeah. So um, the issue of sexual violence started out with women. And it had to start with women because women were disproportionately affected and disproportionately affected right now. So in World War One, in World War Two, in uh, many conflicts in, for example, in the 1990s in Rwanda, in the former Yugoslavia, women were disproportionately affected. So, women, there was a, there's still gender equality to diverging levels, and I don't, uh, it's gonna take decades to achieve gender equality. But uh, the movement started with women, and it had to start with women. But, like with any movement, the idea is to achieve human rights for everyone, recognition for everyone, and human suffering for everyone. So, it started with women, it has to start with women, and women are disproportionately affected, so the movement will always be more about women. (laughs) But until the entire world and societies are aware of men and boys as victims and survivors as well, and to the horrible levels to which they are um, raped and sexually violated and even castrated, until the world becomes aware to that, and services are both for women and and men uh, to the same levels, I don't think... uh, I think there's much to do still. There's much to do in that area. But I don't believe that bringing awareness to sexual violence against men and boys, it's taking a step backwards in the movement of women um, and feminism. Because feminism is just that gender equality, believing that both men and women... Yeah, uh, yeah I think, I think like the, anti, the anti-feminists and those misogynist groups are kind of hurting that issue being talked about. Like every, in every, every, yeah, because like, like every, then every time it's brought up that, oh, that, that uh, men can be victims of sexual violence, then they yeah. just think you're deflating. You're, I don't know if deflating is the right word. Deflecting? The, I think deflecting is the word I'm looking for. In every movement. To change the topic, yeah. In every social movement, in every human rights movement, in every, uh, there's always 
there are always um, people that are fanatic. And there are always people that are very hard to change their perspectives. So, for example, in the human rights move, women's human rights movement, there are people, yeah, that are very fanatic and they do not want um, the sexual violence movement to become also about men because they'll feel that that's taking a step backwards in the woman's side. But I feel that's a very uh, selfish thinking. That's selfish. That's very selfish thinking. And, um, if you really care about human rights and human dignity, um, you have to care about everyone, not just a few or not just men. Yeah. Um, well, I guess they argue that like certain groups are more pressed than other groups. She so has to focus on one to achieve like the other. Like, um, yeah, I guess I guess that's why like you know like there's like a Black Lives Matter group because African Americans feel like under the law like their lives are treated like they matter. So they so in order for all lives to matter, black lives have to matter too. So I think it's just like women feel like, oh, they're 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 victims of sexual assault more. So they they need to be the focus. And then unfortunately because all those radical like right wing groups jumped on the issues that men men's face, like prison rape or like um like what you were talking about too also Another thing they talk about is like uh, male circumcision or um, uh, castration. Like, yeah, castration. Yeah, and uh, men being the ones that were drafted and uh, all those other those other things. But the, the problem is then if you bring up one of those issues that's associated with like those right wing groups who kind of jumped on those issues as a way to just bash feminism and bash women. So I think it's good that someone like you who's like genuine and wants to help people is taking on this cause because I think more people will listen to you because you're coming from a good place with it. You're not looking to put down the woman's movement or put down. No, not at all. And if sexual violence against women and girls is something that I also want to deal with it. I mean, I cannot go to a refugee camp or if I ever go to one, which I, which is what I want to do. Um, I cannot just, treat men without treating women. I don't think that's who I am or who I want to be. Uh, I want to, if you're a true humanitarian, you have to like care about everyone, you know? Yeah. yeah. So do you, th- do you think the internet kind of hurts activism in a way? Like with just people, because everything gets kind of brought down to just buzzwords think, and like yeah, little the, the internet, it's a huge instrument it brings a lot of awareness and it brings a lot of attention to a lot of neglected issues. But then they, the thing with the internet is that only those big channels and those big activists get attention. So the issues that they bring to the masses, those are the issues that get attention. Uh, so until an activist or a, a, a news channel or an NGO decides to pick this subject up and bring it to the masses, I don't think the internet will 
be of much help in this specific issue. Because, for example, with Black, the Black Lives Movement, Black, Black Lives Matter movement, with the women's movement, with the COVID pandemic, with, it's been a lot of help. You've seen how communities rose up and around the world. So the internet's a huge instrument. I just feel like we need more uh, activists to bring attention to this issue that's being neglected. Yeah, that's true. I guess, I guess, yeah, because um, when they're focusing on one issue, then it kind of, other issues kind of get swept under the... the yeah, but, but it's like I told you, it's like the world moves from one issue at a time to, to another issue. Like you cannot yeah. deal with too many issues at a time. So I feel like at some point, it might be the most, um, not right now, I feel like it may be along the road, uh, men and boys as victims of sexual violence may become uh, part of the spotlight. I take the spotlight someday. Yeah, and I, and I feel like, I feel, are you, were you going to say? Yeah, one scholar, I forgot his name, he said that sexual violence against men and boys is the last human right taboo. Isn't that amazing? The last human right taboo. Hmm. So in order for it to become not a taboo anymore, it's for men and boys as, as victims of sexual violence to take the spotlight and getting the, the recognition, the attention and the services they, they need and they deserve. Yeah, and I, and I think someone like you would be a good one to do it because like I, like I said, you're not coming from like the anti- you're not doing it to discredit the feminist movement or discredit women's issues. You're just doing it to also bring attention to the men's issues. So, cause there's a lot of people who thank you been talking about it, but have just been using it more for their own agenda to say, yeah. Hey, feminists, like look, men have this happen too, rather than actually trying to help with the issue. Yeah. That's why we have to always be very cognizant and that we, if we get into this, area of humanitarianism this is for the people this is about the people not about you if along the way you move up the ladder great because that means you have more power to help people but it shouldn't be about that i mean you can help just as much as one person and helping one person at a time uh human connect the human connection you create the amount of help you can bring to that person in the field, it's amazing. So I feel like that happens too, not just in the movement, but also individually. Many people get in the field with a genuine desire to help, but then along the way, they engage in this competitive environment and they start getting this personal, individualistic desire to gain power and move up the ladder. And I feel that's wrong. Uh, when I came back to school at Seton Hall University after my chemo treatment, I discovered that a new batch of students was accepted and they were very competitive. So along the way, I found myself competing with them. And I've, I've, I have always been very passionate about the things that matter to me. But along the way, I lost the passion and I found myself doing it for the wrong reasons. 
because I was being competitive because I have to compete with these people. So I decided to delete Instagram. I deleted, deactivated my account and many social uh, social accounts. And until and I didn't activate it again until like five months later when I knew that I found myself and my 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 passion again. So I feel like these people, activists, humanitarians, we're human. So we're gonna always feel these things about competitiveness, about individualism, because we are humans in the part of who we are. But I feel like if that happens, we have to take a step backwards and reassess our priorities because being working in this field is about the people. It's not about us, you know. Yeah, it's probably more in the Western world. I guess that's an issue. So like but yeah, I know but the like East the, the East is big culture. Yeah. Yeah, but I feel like the, the East like is getting a little bit more capitalist and Western too now. The East isn't really as Eastern as it once was. Like maybe that competitiveness I don't have much to say about that. I don't know. Oh, okay. I, I don't know much about that. Yeah, maybe maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But but like I, I, it's, I guess it's definitely like essentially like a more Western thing, like the competitive. Yeah, I think it's something. Every human is like that. We always want more, and that's not a bad thing. That thing is like when you stop doing the things you want, the things that passionate that you're passionate about, because you got you engaged in this competitive individualistic culture, and it affected you, it contaminated you, and then you find yourself one day doing it because you're competing with these people and not because you're passionate about it. You know, if you find, I feel like if people find themselves some uh, in that situation, they have to take a step back and reassess their priorities and reignite the purpose, the, the, the flame, the fire that got them to what they are doing or they were um, they were doing in the first place uh, which is what I did I feel like uh, we shouldn't do things to compete with people we should do, do them because we're passionate about them you know yeah and, and so so does your does uh, your religious beliefs guide your activism at all because I, I know like you said you became more religious um, through your experiences you talked about earlier with uh leukemia and everything did that did that does that have an effect on your activism at all no it's not that i became more religious um my family has always been christian uh it's more like after i got sick it's like i think i told you at the beginning of the video it's like i got sick i was diagnosed and it's like this grace fell over me and grace that gave me strength and i never cried and I never felt depression, and I never questioned what I was going through. It just gave me strength to go on. And I knew that that grace was given to me by God. So it's not about being religious. It's about knowing that there is a God. I mean, and you can have the belief that you have. But my belief is that, it's that there is a God and that he's up there looking for me. Looking, um, looking at me, uh, and uh, uh, I believe that now more than ever, the things that I'm doing, I'm doing them because part of my beliefs as a Christian is that I have to help people. 
is that I have to give all this love and affection and passion that I have back to the world. So, uh, yes, part of what I'm doing, uh, Jesus and God has, have been very influential in it. Uh, but I, would, I don't like to call it religion because we Christians believe that this is not about religion. This is about a connection. It's about a relationship with God. And, so it's like uh, you, felt, you feel like you felt more presence with the divine and God through your experience rather than you became more religious. You just felt more connected to it. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, and, and, and that makes sense because I know like a lot of the, like the, well, all the Judeo-Christian uh, Judeo religions, it's a lot about like helping, there's that part of it that's like about helping the poor, or, like Jesus was all about um, like helping the poor, the poor and the downtrodden. The, the, the neglected. Yeah. The, the people that were um, unloved or ostracized or <laughs> by the communities. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, and that that's good because um, yeah, because you see like sometimes people on the other side they have a different view and then they use it they use it as an excuse for their own purposes. Do the opposite. Yeah. The opposite, yeah. No, I don't believe that we should use our religion as a weapon to bring people down, to blame people, to point our finger to people. Yeah, <laughs> about helping them. It's about bringing people up. It's to. It's about empowering people. It's about letting them know that there's a God up there that help that loves everyone. And if you allow it. If you allow him, you can also feel the love and, uh, and yeah, well, that we teach about. Thank you for listening to BSing with Sean K on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was my conversation with my good friend and former housemate Christian Ramos, who's an activist and he's trying to advocate for men and boys around the world who've been victims of sexual violence or sexual assault. I hope you enjoyed the conversation, and if you want to listen to Radio Free Brooklyn when you're not in front of the computer, please consider downloading our mobile app from either from the App Store for the iPhone or the Google Store from the for the Android. And for our newsletter, go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash newsletter, and also go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate to donate and also text rfb give five to four four three two one that's another way you can donate uh, i'm on spotify itunes if you want to listen to more bsing with sean k and i'm also on radio free brooklyn every monday 1 a.m to 2 a.m that's about it for this week's episode i'll catch you on the next one